Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jerry Buckley, and welcome to this episode in our podcast series on the prospects for national privacy legislation. As we focus on the prospects for national privacy legislation in the United States, Jody and I have had several guests who have shared with us how the European Union has been able to adopt data protection rules that apply across its 27 member states and have a reach beyond the borders of the EU, impacting businesses in the United States that engage with EU citizens. We've examined how the GDPR came about and how it is being implemented by EU member states. By taking the lead in creating privacy protections for data, the EU has positioned itself as the rulemaker on an international basis. And this approach has empowered EU regulators and courts to establish the rules for use of data by all market participants. This trend is accelerating. And today we are going to examine EU legislative and regulatory developments that are occurring right now that will further expand the influence of EU authorities as they shape the rules for data at a time when the United States has yet to establish national standards or found its voice to assert its views and protect its interests in what is increasingly a borderless digital economy. There is certainly irony in this. The United States is where the digital economy was invented, and our legal system has provided the underpinning for most of the most robust commercial and financial markets in the world. So why are we lagging when it comes to data protection? And why is the United States, by inaction, ceding power to make rules and the common power to dictate economic terms for data to others? Part of the explanation may be that the center of digital innovation in Silicon Valley has been a continent away from the seat of government. Part may be that the rational perception that regulation can have a way of getting in the way of innovation. And part may be an allergic reaction to rules by young creative minds that don't want to be hemmed in by others. However, the vacuum created by U.S. inaction at a national level is increasingly being perceived as an economic and legal disadvantage. The borderless medium like the internet 
makes it impossible to wall off the impact of rulemaking by any major economic bloc that decides to assert itself. The thinking and rationale adopted by those who decide to write legislation has a good chance of prevailing as the world standard, particularly in the absence of any alternative legislation. The accelerating legislative agenda in the EU is stunningly illustrated by regulations and proposed legislation that have emerged in the last month. Jody, would you share with our listeners the data protection initiatives that have emerged in the EU in the last month or so? Uh, thank you, Jerry. Yeah, it's been busy. You know that expression, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, while the U.S. was very busy with our heads in our own election and turmoil within the political parties, the European Union has charged straight ahead and there has been so much come out of the European Union in the month of November that, as you said, it's just mm -hmm. mind-boggling. And so just at a really high level, there is a EU proposal for a directive on collective interests of consumers. Now, this came out November 4th, which introduces a harmonized model for representative action in all member states to guarantee consumers a well-protected process against what they're calling, quote unquote, mass harm um, and safeguards against abusive lawsuits. So it's an EU class action model for consumers against major breaches or disclosures of their information. However, only qualified entities such as consumer organizations will be allowed to represent these groups and bring lawsuits to court instead of law firms. And these entities would have to prove they have a certain degree of stability, be able to demonstrate their public activity, and that they're a nonprofit organization. So. This is a very big shift from the EU approach to the US approach where we have commonly have class action lawsuits filed the same day or within one day of a significant cyber event. So that was the first, was this proposal for a directive on collective interest. Now directives, there's two terms in the EU that's good to understand, directives and regulations. So directives, remember the EU Data Protection Directive that first came out in 1995, a directive has to be implemented into national law of every one of the 27 member states. And then they have time to, to start, you know, actually enforcing it and implementing it uh, into practice. A regulation is effective when it's adopted and it applies across all 27 member states. That's why the EU Data Protection Directive, when that was revised, turned into the General Data Protection Regulation, because a regulation gives more harmonization. So the point is this directive on collective interests of consumers could end up varying a bit across all these 27 member states since it's a directive and would be implemented in national law. They may do it a bit different. Now, the directive, remember, for the data protection directive, we ended up with having to do something about the EU's extraterritorial jurisdiction, where they said you can't take data outside the EU unless you're taking it to a jurisdiction deemed to have quote unquote adequate protections. So one of the means of companies being able to send data back and forth to between EU jurisdictions was to use these standard contract clauses they put out. 
And these standard contract clauses have been in, in, out there now for a long time, more than a decade. And they've been clunky and they didn't serve all the purposes. But most importantly, when the General Data Protection Regulation or GDPR was adopted, they never changed the standard contract clauses. So we were still using these clunky old data protection directive contract clauses. Now on November 12 this year, the EU finally came out with a revised set of standard contract clauses. And they have asked the European Data Protection Board and the European Data Protection Supervisor to issue a joint opinion. But what's important is you recall that a few months back, the Court of Justice for the European Union invalidated our privacy shield program that allowed companies to sign up for privacy shield and then they didn't have to use the contract clauses. They invalidated that program, really pushing everyone back to the contract clauses. But they not only invalidated it, they said, well, you can't just rely on the contract clauses. The Court of Justice of the European Union said, you also have to take into account surveillance by government entities and put in some supplemental measures to protect the data against such activities. People, there's been a lot of talk among our communities about what does that mean, but um, the new standard contract clauses do take that into account and they do take into account some of the recommendations that had been proposed by the European Data Protection Board as some of the supplemental measures that could be used. So there's a lot more to talk about with that, but getting these new standard contract clauses was a big deal. And so that, as I said, came out just November 12th. Do you think that the new contract clauses will make it easier or harder for U.S. enterprises to uh, comply with the SHREMS II ruling? Well, I think it'll make it easier. One, they, they closed some gaps that were there with the others. And they are better worded than the earlier version. And they do, they do track the recommendations in the EDPB. So I think that it will help lead people to doing the things that will be most favorable for compliance. Whereas if they didn't have that leading hand in the wording of the standard contract clauses, they might not quite sufficiently meet the supplemental measures they should take. So they're really providing a guiding hand in the clauses. So I see them as an improvement. One thing I'll say though about contract clauses, and I'm quite alarmed about this, New Zealand passed a new Privacy Act, the Privacy Act of 2020, just uh, last month, I think. And I know New Zealand's not a terribly big deal for global commerce, but what was really shocking though, and we have to remember that they are a 5 I country. They put out their own restrictions on cross-border data flows in this new law and a set of contract clauses. And I went, oh my gosh, you know, this could be a very bad trend. If we start having countries around the world decide they have to have their own set of contract clauses, we could have companies with multiple sets of clauses between their various partners and operating entities just to do business globally. So this, this is a reaching a real pitch point that this approach of everyone trying to piece together their approach, their compliance framework, and the EU reaching out so broadly globally 
is about to come to a tipping point, I think, with corporate compliance. That's an interesting observation, really. And, uh, and of course, where is the United States in this debate? Where is our government in this debate? Well, they've been largely absent for the last decade. They have not represented your cybersecurity very well. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jody, if I could take you back, because you, you, you spoke about the private right of action. And, you know, as you know, our private right of action issue, both private right of action and preemption are the two cited issues by those looking at national privacy legislation as being the stumbling blocks to making it happen. I think there's a lot more, but that those are the two major issues yeah. that are. And in fact, uh, you know, the European Union, uh, while I'm sure that lawyers will be representing those nonprofits, but because they don't have the American rule where each party bears its own legal costs, but rather where the loser has to pay the legal fees for the winner, there are some interesting constraints, uh, but we don't know how it's going to play out. But what runs through my mind is, is there any learning here for a compromise that we could work out in the United States to resolve this private right of action issue? The class action bar is chomping at the bit to get their hands on data issues and to be able to bring class action lawsuits. And they have, they have allies in the Congress, uh, mostly on the Democratic side. But there may be some way, uh, and we will have to follow how this happens, to find a compromise that allows national privacy legislation to be adopted with some form of private right of action that is not going to upset the apple cart. I don't know that's the case. I'm just wondering, any thoughts on that? And probably you'll say you're dreaming, but go ahead. No, but I will say from having headed up domestic policy at the U.S. Chamber for five years, that that approach would be very difficult here because our plaintiff's bar would push back like crazy. The trial bar would just be all over this. And, you know, the civil code countries don't have contingency fee lawsuits. They don't like the loser pays model we we have here uh, or that can apply in some instances. And so they don't really have a well-organized plaintiff's bar like we do. So that's a big difference. I mean, the Silicon Valley companies, it took them a good decade to get their act together to realize that they even needed to have government relations here in Washington. So now they're waking up and saying, oh, no, 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 wait, we can't have all this regulation. Well, that's fine. They can start making noises, but now they've got to deal with global experience, global regulators and diplomats. And plus with this issue, Congress will have the trial bar in their face. And that's a very powerful force. So I think there could be some concepts about it that might help form some bridges between the consumer community and the business community. And that would be a very good thing. But I don't think we'll see anything similar to that in the U.S. We may be able to export our class action bar to Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Only joking. (laughs) They can send us their data regulation and we'll send them our class action bar. (laughs) <laughs> Only kidding. Right. Well, they'll run into that here for sure. Well, those are two very interesting issues, but one that that is most recent and actually uh, probably bodes most important is the EU Data Governance Act, which has been put forward uh, and will be obviously discussed and debated. 
In connection with that, uh, one of the proponents said, our regulation will help Europe become the world's number one data continent. And I think that's instructive uh, for the purpose of our discussion here. Would you share your thoughts about the proposed legislation and does it have the potential to do what I just quoted one of its proponents as saying? Well, this is the new front of the EU and they absolutely will push this. They're still doing this under their old e-commerce directive, which needed needs to be updated, but it's 20 years old, but still it gives them a platform for this. And this Data Governance Act will have two more follow-on pieces of legislation. One will be the Digital Services Act and the other is the Digital Markets Act. And those two pieces are expected this month in December. I don't know when this podcast will air, but if it if it is in January, it's expected in December 2020. Between the three pieces, it's a gigantic initiative by the EU. And I think it's Terry Breton, I think is how we pronounce his name, B-R-E-T-O-N, who is leading the way over there as the official leading this charge for the European Union. And they want to facilitate data sharing across the EU and between sectors and offer an alternative European model to data handling practices of major tech platforms. So the Digital Services Act will aim to shape the digital economy at the EU and set some standards. But the Digital Markets Act will be targeted more toward the economic power of the large online platforms. They call them LOPs, L-O-P's. So we've got online commerce services. We've got social media platforms. And they are going to be in the crosshairs of these regulators because they think they're the ones that have been acting the worst as far as data protection, sharing of data, unauthorized disclosures of data, unauthorized sharing. So this will be the EU Governance Act is a regulation. So remember what I said earlier about this would be apply as if it's adopted, it applies uniformly. And that would help Europe become the world's number one data continent because you would suddenly have 27 countries plus the three more in the economic European economic area right off the bat. And, you know, when other countries around the globe have looked at the EU approach to data in the 20 plus years it's been around, a large number of other countries have emulated what the EU's done. So this isn't just us and them. This is us and them plus a lot more countries. So their approach with this Governance Act, they want to have a mechanism to reuse public sector data for commercial or non-commercial purposes, but in a protected way. They want an authorization framework and a standard consent form. They call it data altruism schemes where the individuals or companies can make their data available for the common good. That's the altruistic part for making the data a part of the common good. But then the data holders would have a choice whether to make it available free or for a charge. So they're zeroing right into this. Now, you know, people talk about data is the driver of the economy. And it's certainly going to be the driver of the economy in the next two to three years as we go toward 2025. So they are they are zeroed right in on this data, the power of data and their control over it. And it's something we are just flat-footed. We're not prepared to counter this. We don't have the 
diplomatic processes in place. We haven't been active in the multilateral fora to really be engaging on these issues. And so it's going to be um, a very interesting discussion when all of this starts coming out, I would expect in January with the new administration. And that is that is a, a very important observation that we do have a new administration. And actually the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which is going to be sent to the president sometime within a short dis- time of this recording of this podcast, creates a, a cyber czar uh, position, which would be in the White House and would be a person who has to be confirmed by the Senate, just as the OMB director has to be approved. That is on the cyber side. The data use side is another matter. And I will be interested to see whether we step forward in that space as well. The idea that we're speaking with multiple state voices as opposed to one voice when Europe is speaking with one voice certainly isn't going to give us uh, much of an advantage in those discussions. So it'll be interesting to see where the new administration proceeds, whether they appoint someone to be the spokesperson on data issues and to and to speak for the United States in international fora. Well, it's very interesting because while, you know, we have a double whammy here with the U.S. lack of leadership and diplomacy on these issues, but then we also have the poor governance by the Silicon Valley companies. The poor governance especially, I mean, with Twitter, with Facebook, those two are in the news all the time. Um, And then, of course, Facebook, I think Facebook owns Instagram now, and they own other platforms that their spill comes over. But when you think about the amount of digital data that these social media companies and the search engines employ, and then you have the cloud service providers, that there's a massive amount of data. And these companies have not exercised good governance. And what is fascinating is to see others moving ahead. And I, you know, I worked in the Congress uh, and I was aware of uh, issues that were over the horizon and we tried to address them. And I, I think I'm hopeful that people in Congress and in the new administration will be looking over the horizon and saying, okay, what can we do? And I, and I suspect that uh, some of those companies that uh, you mentioned are going to be much more aware of the peril of not having rules that are uh, national and have strength in place. And so we'll see whether they're whether we're able to come together. Let me Go ask ahead. you a question. The financial services companies have always had the best and the strongest cybersecurity programs. They've um, been some of the first to have to comply with privacy regulations. And so they have, then they're very respected on the global stage. I'm wondering if the financial services sector couldn't provide some leadership on these issues because of their position, their clout, their role in international e-commerce and markets, that maybe their good example could help offset Silicon Valley's bad example and provide some leadership where we need it. Do you think that's possible? I know you have a lot to do with the financial sector, and I'd like your views on that. Well, I I do think that we have in the financial sector a respect for uh, the importance of data and the reputational risk associated with 
uh, misuse of data. That's not to say that that the that any sector is completely uh, uh, absolved from any any uh, mistakes, but uh, I think you are right in that. And and I actually think that the fintech industry, which is uh, you know related to financial services and migrating toward a more regulated environment, in some cases even seeking banking charters, uh, will be aware of this too. I have uh, had discussions with uh, senior American regulators. I don't want to speak out of school, yeah. but I think uh, that they will, and, and we can, I, I'm hoping to invite one of the senior regulators to join us on a podcast in the not distant future, but I know that the FFIEC, uh, the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council, which is made up of the heads of the various federal regulatory, bank regulatory agencies, has been uh, giving thought to the privacy issue and the need to come to grips with it. And I think that there is the possibility that some leadership will come from there. There's, we have many sectors in the United States, health, financial services, the tech community, and so forth. But I, I think there may be some leadership at the FFIEC on this issue that will be helped to bring along others. Uh, we'll see. But that's good. Good question, Jody. I think we're probably at the end of our uh, half hour here, and I am hopeful that people will be giving us their reactions to some of the issues we've raised. I think the urgency of addressing national privacy standards and, and privacy legislation is accelerated by what's happening abroad. And as you say, uh, we have COVID to deal with. We have an economy to deal with. We have a lot of things that we have to deal with. But this is one of the most important economic issues facing our country. And I hope that by talking about it and talking with others about it, we can raise the visibility and uh, maybe see some action happen. There's a lot that has to be done in terms of bringing people together uh, to make that happen. But uh, I hope we can move in that direction. Yeah, so thank you, Jody. And uh, thank you to our audience. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. national privacy legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, We'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.